You're listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Road to CEO. I'm here today with Matt Goddard, who's been CEO in multiple companies, including R2 Integrated, which he co-founded and built to 200 employees, which had A-list clients like Dell, Microsoft, MasterCard, Under Armour, many more. Matt led R2i through different growth phases, raising capital, acquiring other agencies, finally leading the company through an acquisition to Baird Capital in 2016. We're going to talk about all of it today. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So when I look at your resume, it looks like you started right off as CEO. Uh, Is that what happened? Well, yes and no. Um, I had a business partner, a gentleman named Dave Taub. He was fantastic. We went to college together. We kind of birthed our first company many years before R2I together. And we just decided that I would be the CEO. He was more of a creative guy, uh, more of an operations guy. So his title was chief creative officer. And in 2000 and what year was that? 2007, I think, we merged with another company called Business Intelligence Force, which was more of an IT driven organization. They were doing a lot of content management development when brands were starting to publish more and more content. And he became the CTO. So I guess I just, I just got the title based on, I guess, my skill set. We recognized that I was more of the strategic person. I was more of the, the strategist. Um, Dave was more of an operations guy. And Chris was more of the technology aspect of the business. So, yes. So does that go back to your first company, Impreza, was it? Yeah, um, Dave and I actually started Impreza in 1996 during the the dot-com era. So the timing was good. We were a first-generation, you know, digital marketing, website development firm when all of the companies in in North America and and abroad were trying to get online Mm -hmm. very very early on. And uh, that was a great opportunity for us to get our feet wet. We didn't have any idea what we were doing, to be honest with you. But I think that was key to our success because we didn't know what failure was. We didn't know what success was. And we just ran the business. Uh, it was over very quickly. We sold it to Sinclair Broadcast Group in October of 2000, uh, about, you know, about three and a half years later, because we started in August of 96. Uh, we sold it to Sinclair Broadcast Group and we got very lucky. We were very fortunate because the NASDAQ if I'm, my dates might not be 100% accurate, but the NASDAQ took its second major dive in March of 2001. So we learned the fine line between success and failure. That was, that was the only lesson, the, the major lesson I got from Impreza, although it was a great company, we had a successful exit, was there's a very thin line between success and failure. Because a lot of our competition ended up going out of business in 2001. So we were very lucky, very lucky. That's fascinating. And it's also interesting how those dates kind of do stick with you because we were talking earlier about how some dates are really hard to remember. You know, I'll always remember October 2010. And who knows, maybe I've got that date wrong, but I have October 2010 burned in my, my memory because I, I recall the stock market dropping 
all, you know, all at once. And, and then that was the start of a big recession. And I remember capital got more expensive and I was raising capital. I was raising money at that time. And so I'd planned out a company in 2009, ran it in 2000, started building it after that. And, uh, and, and I had to rethink all of the numbers because, you know, you suddenly could, you could get about a quarter of the capital after the, the, the recession right, started. Sure. So some, some numbers are, some uh, dates are hard to remember and others really stick with you. Yep. They say that if there's a major event of some kind on yeah. a particular date, you'll recall it. Um, but if, uh, if there isn't, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to sometimes remember dates for sure. Yeah. So, okay. So, so that one predated R2 integrated and, um, but R2 integrated did form with a merger, I believe you said. Yeah. What happened was Dave and I started R2 integrated around 2005. Um, I, I've spent a year traveling around the world after my employment agreement with Sinclair ran out. Dave spent that year kind of gearing up to start his next agency. When I got back from my trip, uh, which was maybe September, October, I went to Dave and I said, hey, do you want to do this again? Do you want to do another one? And he said, yes. So we started R2I in around 2005. In 2007, I think it was, we met a gentleman named Chris Chodnicki. He owned a company called Business Intelligence Force. And what was interesting about his company was they were doing a lot of open source content management integration for companies. Because as you know, all websites, you know, they have the design, the front end, the messaging, the personas, uh, the user paths that you create, but they also have the technology backend. And I recognized that the technology backend was going to start playing a greater and greater role because brands were now becoming not just advertisers, but they were becoming publishers. And Google and Facebook, eventually, you know, eventually Facebook was going to drive a lot of this. And brands were going to start building one-on-one -on -one relationships with their customers, not having to go through a television program or a, or a website and have a banner ad sitting at the top of the screen. So we recognized that content management was going to play a major role which eventually transformed into customer experience management. And, ex and the experience management industry was R2I's you know, major service offering that we provided. And that was how we obtained some of our larger customers. But it really was all about that one-to-one -one relationship that businesses needed to form with all of their customers. And that was kind of the web 2.0. And then mm -hmm. you had, they built one-to-one -one relationships through social media, through, uh, through their publishing of content. And it was, a, it was a fascinating time to be in the space. But Chris Chodnicki was the start of that. He had a company that was kind of started to play around with those concepts. So we merged with him in 2007 and the rest is history. I see. I see. That's, that's fascinating. So would you say that's one of your, what was that? Did that remain one of the core kind of values and differentiators of R2 Integrated? Was that publisher type? insight that brands needed to understand that? Yes, we went through a number of strategic business decisions throughout my time at R2I. Um, most of them worked, not all of them worked, of course. But the first one was that brands were going to become publishers. Mm -hmm. We had a, uh, like, our conference rooms at R2I were named Publish, Engage, Connect, and Understand. So you publish content to engage your audience 
you eventually connect with those audiences, get them into your CRM system, start to build those relationships. And the understand part was the data aspect. You have to have data-driven marketing. You need to understand what is effective, what's not effective, so that you can you know, um, optimize your programs. So it was publish, engage, connect, understand. And that was our mantra through like 2007 through like 2011. Then we eventually, uh, in 2010, we also made some very interesting strategic decisions around social and around how social media, there were two aspects of social. There was the social media aspect and the social networking aspect. And the social networking aspect is really the decision-making that peer-to-peer -peer, um, communication networks allow. And the riskier the decision, the more technical the network becomes, the less risky decision, it's your next door, it's your Facebook groups. Hey, I need, to, I need a plumber. You know, who should I hire? So we got involved in the social aspect of it and we were able to combine the brands as a publisher of content trying to engage audiences with the connective tissue that was required in these social spaces. And we made a couple interesting strategic business decisions around helping brands recognize that influencers and these peer-to-peer -peer networks were gonna have an impact on their revenues. And we're able to combine those. And that was a really interesting um, set of business decisions that we made around 2010, 2011. And Microsoft was my biggest customer um, using some of those services. Uh, we helped Microsoft with a large number of different things. We helped them when they had pricing changes on their software. We helped them understand how their networks were gonna be impacted by that, whether they were gonna get bad publicity, good publicity, and we messaged around a lot of different things. So it was really about how brands publish content and engage audiences and how their audiences almost become independent of the brand, independent of just the traditional media that you see out there and actually become these self-fulfilling advice networks where a lot of the brand is taken over by the community and they lose a little bit of, of control. So it was how do you manage both of those very different bookends, so to speak. And now, now brands, I mean, you see what can happen to a brand in an instant. Absolutely. Uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, because they have lost a lot of control over, over the message. And, so, um, I, so I was going to ask, um, you said they lose a little bit of control. And I was going to ask, do they lose a little or do they lose a lot or do they lose all control? You know, if they work with a company like R2I, is it about maintaining control or is that not possible? To be honest with you, I think for every brand, it's always about trying to maintain yeah. some level of control. I mean, that's just the nature of, of marketing, the nature of brand positioning, et cetera. But, but in today's day and age, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 now, brands have lost a lot of control mm -hmm. um, because there are different people with different mindsets, different opinions, and everyone has a voice now. And you've seen brands get in trouble just recently with the Ukraine-Russia conflict because they didn't, they didn't cancel Russia as a, as a geography for them to do business. You've seen brands get a lot of pressure from communities that way. So brands have definitely lost a lot of control, but are struggling to always maintain some, some control over the message, some control over the, 
delivery of the message. And they still do that. You know, brands publish a ton of content, a lot of content on a daily basis. Content strategy, content marketing did not exist in 2007, 2008. This, this, this migration of brands from advertiser to publisher created the whole industry of content marketing. So they're always trying to maintain control, but there's very little of it out there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember doing a, a, a talk in, in Washington, D.C. many years ago, and the opening slide I had was of the Borg. And we were comparing the concept of the Borg to Twitter and how is Twitter becoming a hive mind? Is it becoming this hive mind of different people and is everyone, you know, where you, you can go in there, you can see the messages and, and, now, and now they kind of refer to Twitter as an entity. You'll be, you'll be watching the news or, or on, your, on your MSN or your CNN or whatever and they're like, Twitter decided. You know, Twitter blew up the internet. Twitter, Twitter, and they're, they're talking about it as an entity and that's the beginning of Twitter as the hive mind. And the hive mind is extremely powerful. And it can, it, can, it can make or break a brand. Yeah. So how much of your work with R2I was technology-driven versus people-driven? You know, did you, did, were, and, and specifically what I mean by that, I, I, there are a couple directions I'd like to go with that, but I'm specifically referring to, um, you know, you, you're talking about kind of predicting, for instance, how a brand will be perceived by a pricing change, for instance. Is that surveying people? Are you, are you doing surveys? Are, you, you know, are, are people making phone calls? Or is it technology-driven and analyzing you know, tweets kind of with algorithms? You know, how does that work? In the case, of the, in the case study with Microsoft, it was technology-driven mm-hmm. and people-driven because we had messaging points that had been crafted by people. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, technologists that knew how to distribute those messaging points when necessary. So that was a combination of people and technology. But we had like a, I hate to use the analogy, a war room of large flat screen TVs monitoring the chatter, monitoring the sentiment. And when we saw sentiment moving in a direction where we weren't comfortable with it, we used those messaging points and we added those yeah. to the community to try to not, not necessarily squash it, but mitigate the risk. It was all about risk mitigation because that's the thing I learned at Microsoft. When you're a multi, multi-billion dollar company, yeah. if something moves a half a percentage point, that adds up to a lot of money. So our job was to mitigate the risk, to keep those half percentage points in our favor and to prevent a large backlash from occurring. So it was always a combination. I mean, technology is invented by people. It's used by people. You have, an, you have an agency right now. You see the combination of people and technology and digital marketing is really is all about those two, to, those two things working in tandem on a daily basis to achieve goals. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's I, I'm glad that you clarified that because I think especially probably 2007 through through 2015 or even through today, there, there is a blend of human input and whatever you want to call it, AI, technology, you know, um, but there's a blend, you know, and, you know, at some point, maybe it'll be all technology because, yes. we'll, I mean, and probably, I mean, my personal perspective is that probably will be, in many cases, things will be driven, you know, 99% or 100% by technology. But, 
you know, through today, there's still a large human element that is necessary. And, you know, like you said, for a multi, multi-billion dollar brand in particular, you know, those little things matter and you need that human judgment interacting with the technology to, to get the result that, that a brand is going to need. Yeah. What I find most fascinating, well, I find a lot of things about digital marketing fascinating, but as the technology has evolved, the internet has gotten more and more efficient. Look at Google AdWords, you know, the bidding engines and all the, the efficiency yeah. that that brings. So as the internet continues to become more and more technology driven with AI and RPA, et cetera, um, you're going to see it get more and more and more efficient. As a marketer, efficiencies make differentiation harder and harder. Take a, a simple example. How can ABC plumbing differentiate itself online versus DEF plumbing in the Google AdWords world that they live in? They can't really differentiate that way. So, so then, all, then it always centers back on the product. The best products in a highly efficient marketplace mm -hmm. driven by AI, driven by RPA, which is robotic process automation, driven by those things, the products eventually become the center of the universe. When you combine that with the social spaces and the hive mind that we talked about, where the brands do not have complete control of their, their message, the product even becomes more and more important, more and more important. So I've seen this, this crazy evolution of technology and efficiency, and it makes it harder and harder and harder for the marketing department to actually create any differentiation. And, and then it comes back to the product. It always comes back to the product. Now we're probably, you know, 25 or 30 years away from maybe seeing that complete efficient, that, you know, the efficiencies becomes to the point where differentiation is impossible. You can still differentiate yourself. There's still ways to do it. But as, as more and more technology enters the ecosystem, I find marketing differentiation harder. Product yeah. differentiation becomes the key. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I actually, you know, I feel like we could go down that path. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I could talk to you for, for hours, um, you know, I, and I, I'm not sure wh which direction I want to go right now, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, so I do agree with what you're saying. I think um, for s super small businesses, like let's say ABC Plumbing, for instance, there is maybe a local value that will, I don't know, give some hope to local business owners, you know, yeah, they can't differentiate, it's gonna be harder and harder to differentiate. And it is harder. I mean, I see that firsthand, you know, but on a tiny scale, you know, for maybe for lifestyle businesses for, you know, you know, I, I feel like, in some ways, there are, you know, it's easier for them to find community from people who maybe they don't even care if they're differentiated, they care if they're high quality, and they're in their community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then I feel like at, as they try to expand beyond that, it becomes, it may become incredibly difficult, maybe impossible as they get that perfect efficiency on the internet. But I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe the local level um, where you need a certain number of clients, um, I could see that continuing to work and continuing to differentiate because maybe you want to do business with a neighbor that can't be, you know, that can't be replaced by a you know, a corporation that, that is able to benefit from the economies of scale. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, businesses have all different component parts. Yeah. They've got, you know, their financing. They've got their maybe community relations. 
department, they've got the product they deliver, and they have their digital marketing. I was really referring to the digital marketing pipe and the difficulty in differentiating there. And mm. what that does is that then puts more value. And when you add value, add a little pressure to the other pipes. So in your example, you know, being entrenched in your community, having a great community relations person, you know, um, sponsoring the local T-ball mm. league, that might be how you have to differentiate yourself mm. in the future. And your product needs to be really good. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're going to get slammed. But on the digital marketing pipe, I feel AI is going to make differentiation almost impossible. I mean, you can differentiate the creative team. You know, some creatives better than others. Mm -hmm. um, and you can differentiate in those other buckets we mentioned. But in the, in the straight digital, yeah. I remember we, we differentiators in 2008 when social was, you know, starting to become a thing. We differentiate R2I as experts in social by buying a number of Google AdWords mm -hmm. at a very, very low price and creating a, a newsletter, an R2I social newsletter, which was educating people on social, on the differences between social media, social networking, how as the communities became more efficient, they were gonna, the brands were going to start losing control. And we were able to differentiate ourselves for like a couple of years by buying AdWords on Google. Mm. We could not do that today. Right. We, we, you know, so just use, you know, just common sense, simple. Yeah. What I could do in 2007 and 2008, I cannot do today. Very true. Um, so, and it's because it's gotten to be so efficient. And, and in some ways the internet kind of democratizes everything. Cause when you, when you create all these efficiencies, you level the playing field. So you have all these entrepreneurs, all the, this gig economy, absolutely freelance engines. Think about what happened to purchasing a car, buying travel. You know, the efficiencies of these engines have created situations where anybody can run a business at any time and you can buy anything at any time and prices will drop because of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for R2 Integrated, you, I think, had the challenge of managing multiple different types of people. You managed technology folks and you managed creative folks. What was that like? Um, it was fun. Um, you know, different, different personalities. But, but we started to see an evolving, like a group in the middle that was, you know, creative, but also had a technology mind. And I, mm. I think that, and those, those tended to be the younger folks, the people, like the, the millennial generation where technology was embedded in their world. I'm a Gen Xer, we use technology to get things done. But the millennials had it embedded in their world and because it was embedded in their world, they may have been a very creative person, but they understood how, to, how it was gonna work and what the technology was gonna bring to the table. But it was fun. We had very different um, personalities and it kind of, um, I guess it led to an organizational chart that allowed for these individual people to work together. We had a, a centralized account management team that worked across the creatives, worked across the digital marketers, worked across the technologists and the data analysts. And they were, they were client centric, but they were also designed to mm. you know, herd the cats across the different departments. Mm. 
and then we had department heads. We had a, a chief creative officer. We had a, um, a chief, a head of technology. We had a head of search, a head of social, a head of email. You know, we had department heads. And then we also had someone at the center of the universe who was our VP of operations. She was a rock star. Her name was Sarah Hampton. She was the, one of the most important employees we had. And she scheduled the work for everybody. Mm. We had one centralized person wow. schedule the work. Because you never, want, you never want a situation where one of the owners goes to an SEO person and says, hey, I need you to do this for me. But that SEO person has an account, two account managers that they're working with right now and other customers. It can create chaos. So the VP of operations was the center of the, of the company and scheduled everything. And it worked. I mean, we had, you know, all different personalities, even the different offices had personalities, you know, Baltimore being the blue collar, roll up your sleeves and get it done office. Then we had, you know, the Silicon Valley office, which had like 90 people in it. And that's a totally different culture because, you know, they had a lot of technology customers and, you know, they dreamed big. Mm -hmm. Anything was possible out there. We had our Seattle office, which I described, no offense to people that live in Seattle, as the crunchy paranoid office. They were a, a very uh, crunchy group of people, very environmentally friendly, which is important. But they also had like a paranoia about them. And I, I, I think that was because the whole economy was run by like five companies. So there was um, a, la a little bit of a lack of trust when they first met you. Interesting. Um, so that was an interesting, and then New York is New York. That was my smallest office. Uh, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. So we had, we even had different personalities in different offices. That was the hardest challenge was getting the offices to work collaboratively. Interesting. That was the hardest challenge. Um, you know, because the entrepreneurs in those offices, they created their companies. We, we, we started the Seattle office organically. Okay. We got Microsoft as a customer. And then I, I said, show me, you know, can I get a show of hands? Who wants to move to Seattle for a year? And three people volunteered. So we moved them out to Seattle. I was going seven or eight days, sometimes 10 days a month. Mm -hmm. And we organically built that office. The Silicon Valley office was acquired. And the New York office was acquired. Okay. So it was just really the challenge. The people challenge was really getting the entrepreneur in those offices to feel connected to the company as a whole, any integration challenge that you have. We pulled it off, but it was hard. It was definitely hard. That's interesting that you, so you grew the Seattle office organically, but it had a culture that was different than your, uh, th than the Baltimore office. So that, that's interesting to me in particular, because as an agency owner myself, culture is, is super important. Um, I, and I always think of it as a universal cult company culture. We hire for specific values and, you know, and, and, you know, and I see it as my job in part to reinforce those values and talk about them. Um, you know, and, but, and we're also a virtual company. So we've got 25 employees that are distributed. Um, although there is, you know, one, you know, regional concentration, um, and one kind of big regional office or bigger for us, big office. Um, but I don't really think of ha offices as having different cultures. So that, that's interesting. So can you talk a little more about that? Like how, you know, um, 
are, I mean, were there values that were shared between the offices um, that were similar? And, and, you know, can you talk about maybe what was different and what was similar about the two cultures? Yeah, sure. I mean, culture is a people. And people come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and they're going to have different biases, for example. And you're never going to be able to strip those biases from them. They're always going to have them. So it's important as a CEO to have an overarching corporate culture and an overarching set of values and you know, mission statements, positioning statements that the company can rally behind. Mm-hmm. So there's diff- I think it's in layers. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got your, your mission statement, your value proposition, what you say you do to the market for the marketplace, the products you deliver, how you deliver them, which is at the very top. But then as you go down the layers and you get down to an individual person, you know, things can be more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Seattle is, it's, it rains all the time, um, except for two months in the summer where it's the greatest place to live on the planet Earth. I told Jody, who who moved out there, she was a the, the number four employee at R2I. She was also a rock star, Jody Store. I said, if it was like this, it was August, and we were. I was I was out there. I was like, if this was if it was like this every day, the whole world yeah want to live here. You, you have to be thankful that it rains ten months out of the year, so you can afford to live here. So you can actually. Because it, it was just gorgeous. The only times I've been to Seattle, it's been gorgeous. I've, I've, I've gotten lucky. It's been the, the per, must be right in that two-month window. Yeah, that two-month window. So there's different, and that has an effect on people. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, I think, you know, you, you obviously as a CEO have to have your core value propositions and endpoints. But you also need to recognize yeah. that different people from different parts of America have different desires, different needs, different wants, and different biases. And some of those biases um, can trace back to where they live, Yeah, where they were born. When we, we did our company meeting in California. Now, Silicon Valley isn't as laid back as Newport Beach or Laguna Beach, for example, but it's still a different, different world out there. And you, mm-hmm. need, to, you need to embrace that too. Um, so it, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to do, but you, you've got to try to find, find ways to embrace that. Do, would you, did you run the offices as independent business units, essentially that each one would have its own P and L each one would kind of be kind of almost be an independent business essentially. And that would all be operating under kind of the R2I umbrella, or were they all operating under one big profit and loss type model? Um, we did it in phases. When we first made the acquisitions, we centralized sales and marketing. So a sale could be made in mm. Boston, Massachusetts, and that work could be done in Campbell, California. Mm-hmm. So we centralized the um, sales and marketing. We centralized the back office. We centralized the HR. But the delivery teams were office specific, were office specific. Uh, We did that because we didn't want to, you know, you don't want to create too much chaos and too much change right away. So we we kept the delivery team central and then, and the delivery teams, because they stayed central to their office location Mm -hmm. had different flavors. Mm. Silicon Valley had a different flavor from the perspective of the companies they had the most expertise with, which were high tech startup companies and not just, not just, 
Series A, $1 million in the bank. We're talking about Series D, $100 million, $200 million finance businesses. Um, and they also were really good with the creative. Um, and then we had the Baltimore office, which interestingly enough, most people don't realize Maryland has like the second highest, you know, technology educated workforce in the nation became like the technology hub mm. of the firm. It became um, our experience management team. We, we, we ended up aligning ourselves with some of the largest experience management companies in the world, like Adobe and Sitecore. They became our partners and that became the experience management hub. And then we had Seattle almost became our social marketing hub because we incubated a lot of our social strategies with Microsoft, which was a very forward thinking business. You may not think that of, of, of a Microsoft because it's such a behemoth, but they were very forward thinking and they, and they understood what social was going to be. So they, they had a lot of expertise in social and also email and CRM. We did a lot of email marketing for Microsoft. New York was just a small little office. We had like 20 people in there. They were kind of a do it, a, a jack of all trades type of office. So we had different centers of excellence, but eventually like in 2015 and early 2016, our hiring practices evolved. And now we didn't care where you sat. We didn't care what office you were in. Interesting. We would hire people from anywhere as long as they had the ability to deliver for us. So we had some social people in Seattle because we found the best social person we could. I mean, in, in Silicon Valley, I'm sorry. We had some social people in Silicon Valley. We had some technologists in Seattle. One of our, one of our major technologists, the, the head of the technology team lived in St. Louis. Hmm. So we, 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 we modified that behavior, but it was a slow progression. So what you're just, I'm sorry, go on. From 2013 to 2016. Was that progression driven in part by just the fact that technology was allowing people to work and collaborate by, you know, from long distance? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Technology was allowing people to collaborate and work from long distance, which was allowing companies to find the best person yeah. across the country, which you'd never, you never were able to do that. You know, yeah. you, you, you weren't able to find the best, the, the, the best technologist in Adobe one of the best in the world was located in St. Louis. We were able to bring that person into our world. Yeah. In the past, we may not have been able to do that. So it was, it was part technology uh, and part just knowing that you need to find top quality people. It's hard to hire in our industry. So yeah. sometimes you can't, the best person in your particular geography is already working for somebody else. Yeah. And you can't, I never recruited. I, I was never a headhunter type of person. I felt that was unethical from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. I never did that. Um, so we weren't going to pluck somebody from company A and try to get them to come to, to our company. So you may not find the best person in your location. And now technology has become so, it's, 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 it's so prevalent to be able to work from anywhere. And COVID didn't, COVID actually became like a catalyst for working everywhere and became a catalyst for, the employees that we have like one big gigantic union. Now every employee in North America is part of a union and is dictating their own terms. And that's been an interesting paradigm shift. I saw a, a stat recently that said, you know, companies that have remote positions have like 700% more applicants 
wow. than companies that say you have to work in an office. So you're seeing this, again, technology, the great equalizer, democratizing, if that's a word, democratizing the labor force. And then you've got the hive mind talking and everyone's talking to each other. You have the, you have the great resignation where everyone's like, I'm going to leave this company. I'm going to find something better. And the internet has created a gigantic union of workers that are now dictating what they want. And what they want is to not commute 40 minutes into the office every day. Yeah. Um, and your team in Serbia is another example of that. You can go global. That's right. Because, you know, Eastern Europe, those are some of the smartest technologists you'll ever find. Absolutely. Now you can enroll them in, in your company in North America. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch what all this, all this digital technology, whether it be Microsoft Teams or Zoom, uh, whether it be Slack, uh, you know, has, has done to allow for this globalization and, yeah. and the, flattening, the flattening of the world. Isn't there a book, The World is Flat? Didn't someone write a book? Thomas Friedman, I believe. Oh, The World is Flat. I wonder yeah. if he was alluding to what we're talking about right now. I'll have to, I haven't read that book. I'll have to pick it up and read it. I, I, you know, I read it a long time ago, and I think maybe yeah, I, I should reread that. I think, he, um, I think he probably was predicting a lot of this, but I, I, think, he wrote it well, I think he wrote it before a lot of these trends. Um, but I, I do think he kind of saw what saw was coming them. to a certain extent. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating though. And it sounds to me like I started going, expanding more globally around the same time that R2I was, was, was moving towards the distance work, um, you know, coincidentally. Um, and I remember I always thought, and, and one of the big motivators for me to do that was that I would, was started getting clients all over the world. And I remember thinking, you know, well, my clients aren't limited by geography and that's a huge advantage to me why should why should the the labor and the the workforce be limited by geography it should be the best people no matter where they are um and and i and i also felt that if i'm going to be servicing clients that are in london and you know and, and really anywhere no matter i've got clients in maryland which are five miles from me mm -hmm. um and i almost never visit on site because it's not necessary they you yep. know they they prefer everyone prefers to be to be virtual and that's been that way for 6 7 years with with in that case and so you know if i'm responsible for servicing them i should be kind of flexing those muscles by forcing myself to learn to collaborate with the team that's distributed so it's almost i, I saw it almost as an exercise to say okay well we've got to keep the clients super happy so therefore we've got to be we got to be the you know, world's leading experts in how to uh, interact uh, virtually. And so, yeah, ab yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's a, you can, you can do anything from anywhere yeah. at any time. And it's important as you, as you, as you've recognized to leverage these changes yeah. to work to your advantage because Eastern Europe, I mean, we had, we had, um, I was the chief, uh, I was the interim chief commercial officer at DigiDay for a year and we had a Ukrainian development team. Mm. They were some of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. And now you can leverage the, that brain power for your own company and yeah. help you grow. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get back to something you said uh, earlier about how you started your first company. You didn't know what you were doing. That was an advantage. Can you, it's, do you consider yourself to be an operations guy? Like, are you, do you, do you feel like you're a, a, uh, you know, you're, you know, is that one of your strengths at this point? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, 
like I think my strengths, Dave, Dave Taub, my, uh, my old business partner said, Matt, you do two things better than anyone I've ever met. And I was like, what's that? He's like, you know how to make money and you can predict the future. <laughs> and I go, Dave, nobody can predict the future. He's like, but you've always been able to kind of stay a little ahead of the game. And that's, that's my core strength. I'm able to see things, make predictions, and more often than not, not all the time, more often than not, they come true. And I did that with brands as publishers. I did that with the social marketing space. The third thing we did is we built an analytics engine mm -hmm. using Tableau and an ETL that our developers coded. We were providing an incredible amount of insights into what was happening every day. I told my team, I said, just make the, if the numbers are going up, you've got a happy client. You know, it's, it's really that simple. So I've been able to predict some things. Um, but I am, if you do my personality study and you, like I've done a lot of these, we did these when Baird um, um, bought us. I did these for another company that I worked for, for a year. Um, I'm an analyzer. That's my personality. And I'm also a builder innovator. So I've got builder, innovator, and analyzer. And I guess when you combine those, I look at situations, I analyze them, try to understand them, and then try to predict what's going to happen next. Um, so that's, that's really me. I, I can do operations. I was the COO yeah. for a small company in Gaithersburg for a year, which was really fun. Um, um, so I can do the operations, but at the higher level, mm -hmm. I can do operational systems. Mm -hmm. I'm not an, I can't execute. That's probably my biggest weakness is to actually get my hands onto that Google AdWords dashboard and, and execute. That's not me but I can create operational systems and I can, I can look out. Nice. I told my partners when R2I in like 2015, I'm like, I'm like, you may not like my job now, but my job is to look a year and two years out. I can't, I can't spend my time in the day to day anymore. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I did that for many, many years. I can't do that anymore. I got to look out because that's going to make sure that we survive and thrive as a company. Now, what year did you say that you, that you started to think, do that? 2015. 2015. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. We ended up, we, we sold the company maybe a little earlier than what we thought we would sell it, but the valuations were really high at the time. And I had a minority private equity investor named Oryx. They're out of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And although it was fun to have them, we felt like we lost a little bit of our entrepreneurial mm. DNA when you bring in institutional money, yeah. that can happen. So uh, the valuations were really high. Our entrepreneurial DNA was slowly starting to fade because it became a numbers game when mm -hmm. you have institutional money. And I also, I took a look around the company. This is the hardest thing I had to do. I took a look around the company and we had some really bright people, really smart people that we probably, we probably could have gotten the company to 50 million. We sold it at 35 million. We probably could have got it to the 50 million, but that would have been a, a risk. Yeah. So I'm looking at the risk between 35 and 50. And I saw tremendous risk there. And I saw the fact we may have to let some of our senior people go mm -hmm. and bring on additional people, which a, a really great CEO would have just done that. I'm, I was too connected. To some of those people. Mm. They helped me build the business. They helped me grow it. They were rock stars. 
but I just felt there was too much risk. Yeah. So that's one of that's that's the one of the reasons we decided to sell. Interesting. I, I wasn't I I wasn't as cutthroat yeah. as I would need to be. Like these CEOs, you know, these these big companies, like oh, this number's off by two percent. Go go fire a thousand people. You know, they're just they're just running the machine. Yeah. When you're a small business owner, your machine tends to be people that you know and you like, that you've that you've celebrated holidays with, you've gone to their birthday parties, and it's 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 a little bit harder. Yeah. A little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so did you always um have a the, a plan to take on growth capital? Um, I mean, obviously you started off. I assume you didn't have growth capital, but you, but you came out of an exit that, that went well. So, you know, you were doing just fine. Um, did you, you know, I assume though, did you start off with kind of organic growth as the plan and then you decided you wanted to bring on a growth partner um, or did, or did you always plan on that? We did not always plan on bringing in a growth, growth partner. This is part of my maturation as a CEO okay. in terms of looking at the marketplace we got the company up to around 17 million in revenue organically. Wow. Which was pretty good. Yeah. And I looked at the marketplace and at the time there were 8,900 agencies in North America. 8,800 of them were doing under 10 million in revenue. Yeah. So you're talking about a tremendous amount of fragmentation, fragmented, fragmented, fragmented. You take that data point, then you look at the holding companies and what they've done where they basically just buy different smaller agencies that are doing 20 or 30 million in revenue. You know, those hundred mm -hmm. that, are, that, that have broken through and figured out how to, how to do it. Um, and they're buying them. So you've got, again, this, this, these individual brands sitting in these gigantic holding companies. Um, private equity entered digital marketing relatively recently because of, you know, the, the customer experience management, the fact that large companies needed that they entered, they entered fairly recently. There weren't a lot of private equity companies that owned digital marketing agencies, you know, 10 years ago. So now they're in the market. And when I took all those, I said, the only way we're going to really be able to grow this business. And our, our job was to always be centered in Baltimore, but we wanted to be a national company. I go to my, my, my partners, I'm like, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? You know, let's, let's grow this thing. So we brought on a minority investor, Oryx, and they helped us make a couple acquisitions, which was critical to our getting up to 35 million in revenue within like a couple of years. You know, we didn't, we went from 17 to 35 in like three years, I guess, because we made a couple different acquisitions. Um, and that was kind of my evolutionary thinking was, wow, this is a fragmented, industry. I bet you if you take the 8,800 that are doing under 10 million, I bet 8,000 of them are doing under two or 3 million. Yeah. It's just such a fragmented industry. Yeah, it's and it requires, it requires you to make acquisitions in order to grow. Mm. If you, if you, if you want to, if you want to really make, make a name for yourself. Yeah. Now we often hear about acquisitions that go wrong. You know, you get an acquisition and then it doesn't play out the way you wanted it to, for whatever reason, you know, maybe, maybe clients disappear because they, they, you know, they feel like the, the agency they picked is no longer the same agency. Um, employee, key employees leave. 
you know, probably plenty of other reasons why acquisitions don't work out. It sounds like you made a couple of acquisitions and I'm not sensing any, any regret, you know, did that, did the acquisitions, you know, were they, were they all rosy and, and easy? Uh, not, not all rosy, <laughs> not, not, not even close. Acquisitions are very hard. I think like seven out of 10 fail, mm -hmm. but they still happen on a regular basis. Yeah. Every, so um, the biggest acquisition we made in Silicon Valley, it went very well for many years. Mm -hmm. they, had, they had a record month revenue-wise the year after we bought them. It went very, very well. And then it started to crack a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, the main guy there, the, the guy that ran the office, who was the, the founder mm -hmm. of the company, he had a major health issue. Mm -hmm. And he had to leave. What I learned very quickly was he was really the glue of that agency. The other thing that was happening, which was company um, focused, is we were getting more and more into the technology of the internet. In 2015, we won Adobe Partner of the Year, wow. which was a big accomplishment for a company our size. Big accomplishment. So we were becoming more technology focused. And the Silicon Valley office was becoming more, was, was, was more creative in their way of doing things, more of a demand generation mm -hmm. entity. So um, it, it became harder and harder to keep that large team fully operational and fully functioning. But we grew in other ways. You know, it was, it was like basically we were shrinking aspects of our service offering, mm -hmm. which was in that center of excellence in Silicon Valley and growing aspects of our service offering, which were more in Seattle and in, in Baltimore. I see. Um, but it, acquisitions are tough. And, and when, you know, in the agency world, the, the, the entrepreneur, the, the founder of the business or the co-founders of the business, they're vitally important. Yeah. I think had Tom stayed, he would have rejuvenated the demand gen side of yeah. the business um, while we continued to grow the experience management and the technology side of the business. But he wasn't there now. Yeah. And he wasn't. And so there was nobody to really do that. So if you were making an acquisition tomorrow and it was an agency, you know, you know, maybe a creative shop technology, you know, creative slash technology shop, um, you know, would you do anything different in terms of how you would kind of figure out, is there one key employee, one key leader who is the glue? Because that's a big risk. If, if there, I mean, obviously if there, if, if there's not one key person who's the glue, then that seems like a safer investment. Um, is there anything different you would do in terms of, uh, how you would vet that based on what I you learned? I wouldn't do anything differently, but to go back to R2I and our acquisition strategy, we actually made an attempt to buy a company. They were headquartered in Salt Lake city, Utah. They were called Axis 41. Mm. They were an experience management, Adobe Sitecore marketing cloud company, because my criteria was service offering, you know, cultural fit, you know, geography, the service offering for the company we bought in Silicon Valley was not customer experience management. Mm -hmm. I knew that's where the industry was headed. Two or three years from now, that was going to be the it. So we went after Axis 41 and we tried to acquire them. We, were, we, were, we, we knew those guys, we competed with them and we couldn't get the acquisition done. 
about three years later, they were acquired by Merkel. So they did very well for themselves. They were one of the few, they, I think they got up to around 20 million in revenue organically when they were acquired. So we bought the Silicon Valley company. They weren't like, they were my second choice. Because of what happened with Tom and recognizing that that wasn't really the future of, of digital marketing, experience management was going to be the future. I may not have bought them mm. in hindsight, in hindsight, but our strategy was always to buy access 41. Mm -hmm. That was always the, the strategy. And we just, they just slipped through our fingers. We just couldn't, couldn't get it done. That's one of my biggest regrets because had we bought them, we may have, we may have been doing 50. We, we probably could have done 50 million in revenue just with yeah. the core. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I love talking about regrets and mistakes. <laughs> um, you know, when you look back on your, uh, you know, your tenure as CEO, not just of R2 Integrated, but just your, your tenure as CEO kind of throughout your career, you know, what, what maybe one of the things that you learned, you know, that you feel like you, you really changed on, you know, something that you, uh, you know, how, how did you evolve, you know, kind of from your, your early days? Like, were you, did, you know, were there any mistakes you would make kind of uh, that, that you, you learned better about, you know, as you, uh, as you grew? Oh yeah. I mean, we made, we made a ton of mistakes. I used, I told everyone in the company, you can make as many mistakes as you want. Just make sure they stay within our four walls. Mm. When a mistake leaves our four walls and the marketplace sees it, then it's a problem. But if you make mistakes inside of our four walls, that mm. my main evolutionary thinking, like me as an evolved CEO from the small business guy we're, our first company we worked was in our apartment in Fells Point in Baltimore, from the small business guy to the guy that had 220 people. I went from being a control freak, mm. where I where I had to own everything, I had to see everything, I had to touch everything, to being the exact opposite. Yeah, where I recognized there was only so many hours in the day, and I could only do so much, and the only way we were going to grow the business was delegation and finding smarter people. So I, I, I went from being a, a control freak, um, do the work, try to do the work kind of person to being someone who was more on the recruiting trail, trying to find mm -hmm. the best people to do the work. And then it got to the point where I used to, um, again, I, I used to tell people in the company, if I have more than two or three appointments a day, that's too much because I don't have time to think. And I think by, by giving myself time to think, that helped me make some of these predictions that ended up, you know, you know, being the, being the, being the core of what R2I ended up becoming. Um, so be, be less busy, be more thought provoking, find the best people and let them do their job. That was me later in my career and is me now in my career. Um, before I was a control freak, that was, that was the major evolution. That I, I think that's, I, I think that's awesome, and and I, I can relate to that. I think, um, you know, what, what it could, and for me, I started off as a freelancer. You know, I was doing, I was one person shop. You know, I, I, you know, hired an assistant, but really, it was a, it was a one person thing, and I felt like that's what I needed to do. And uh, as I've grown, it's been all about empowering others. You know, yes. and, and doing what's necessary to to empower others, and and I, I find that way better. 
Yeah, and you've gone from one person to many, many, many people. Yeah. So your strategy is working. You still have to stay in the business to a degree. You still have to make the yeah. strategic decisions. You know, I, I made some of the, I was like the last person to interview some of the candidates that were brought to me. But eventually, you got to recognize you're only one person and there's only so yeah. many hours in the day. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, what, what are you up to now? Oh, well, what I'm doing now is I've got a bunch of different things. I'm kind of semi-retired. Um, but I'm doing a bunch of different things and they're crazy, crazy things. I've got a luxury watch trading business where we buy and sell luxury watches, expensive ones, like $180,000, watches. And the watch market has gone bananas over the last couple of years. So that's been a lot of fun. I have a partner in Florida who basically does the execution um, finds the trades, buys the trades. I'm the capital and I'm also the back office. I have a CPA. I got a CPA many, many, many years ago. So I do all the accounting and the tax mm. returns. Oh, okay. um, that is a lot of fun. I also own, I just recently purchased three Pet Supplies Plus pet franchises. Mm. Uh, we think we found our first location. Um, so we're going to open those. I'm not going to run them. Mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll oversee them. We're going to run those. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm learning all about the pet market. I, I've had a dog, I've had a cat in my life, but I didn't realize how obsessed uh, America has gotten with their pets. Um, <laughs> Very true. And, and the money that they spend on their pets and the, and the, the, you know, the level of care that they provide them. It's, it's fantastic. So we're, we're doing that. I'm also, I've been under the, under the Goddard digital, which is basically a placeholder, I've been the interim um, chief commercial officer for DigiDay. I was the interim COO for a company in Gaithersburg, Maryland called Blue Corona, mm. which does a lot of demand generation in the small business market. They're doing very, very well. I actually took a CEO job with a company called Bulldog Media. Mm. Uh, I did that job about a year ago, so a year, and that was a big challenge for me because they were in Madison, South Dakota which was far. And culturally, I was struggling to get in with the team. Mm. I was only there six or seven days a month. And it was just really hard. Uh, they had taken a major hit in the market. Our revenues were starting to go back up. But I couldn't, I couldn't culturally connect with the team. And the founder was still there. He's a rock star, really sharp guy. And the team always gravitated towards him. And I basically ended up just leaving. I see. So now I'm doing some consulting. I'm, I'm kind of pl- looking around, applying. Uh, I'd, I'd like to maybe get into private equity investments or a startup company. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go work for a mature business that has it all figured out. So mm-hmm. a small startup company that needs some horsepower, needs some brain power, or maybe an M&A, private equity, because I always enjoyed making the acquisitions. Mm. I always, I always enjoyed hearing the pitches, dissecting them, you know, finding the flaws, finding the positives. I always really enjoyed that. So I'm kind of noodling around right now, but that that's all I'm doing right now. Well, that sounds like enough. That's a, that's, you've got a lot of things going on. That's yeah, very interesting. The What's the name of the watch, uh, the, the watch company? Um, C and M watch trading. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, my, my business partner's named Cal Knight. Uh, he's, he's again, ridiculously good, knows, knows the watch business like the back of his hand. 
So it's Cal and Matt watch trading. We don't have a website. Everything is done through relationships. I see. Again, but the internet is starting to enter the watch business. eBay, there's Chrono24. There are different websites. There's Value Your Watch. Different websites out there that are helping, you know, level the playing field in the watch trading business, which will eventually um, cause my margins to squeeze a little bit. That's what happens. Um, but we're watching that pretty closely and we're, and Cal also, he's an interesting guy. He's got some, some ideas for the next technology that might disrupt the watch business even more. Interesting. And we're starting to map some of those ideas on paper and maybe we'll build some software, uh, that, that takes the eBay and the Chrono 24 and changes the paradigm a little bit. Very that cool. That might be the horizon. Very cool. So um, it, one thing that's interesting about what you're, you're doing now is, um, you know, when, so you, cause it, it's very different from what you started out in. And I mean, obviously there's some, some similarities and synergies, but when you, but I, I find it interesting that you did your first company, sold it and then started R2 integrated, which was, as you put it, doing the same thing again. And now it sounds like you're really branching out doing, doing, doing a wide variety of things. Yeah, we, we've talked, like Dave, Chris, and I have talked pretty extensively about buying R2i back when it goes on the market. Mm. Who knows when in the next couple of years? It's owned by private equity. They typically have a time sure. horizon. So we've talked extensively about maybe buying R2i back. Wow. Um, being in New Jersey, uh, and I live, I live in, the, in, the, on, in the western, northwestern part of New Jersey, which is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's like these small little towns, a lot of farms, fantastic schools for the kids. It's a great place to live. But New York is where all the action is. And it takes me too long to get into New York City. Mm-hmm. And I'm away from all my contacts in Maryland. I've thought about starting another digital agency. Mm-hmm. I contemplated it. But I'm just not at a place right now where I feel like it would be successful. Yeah. Um, I just don't don't feel like it would it would work, but buying R2I back is definitely in the cards. I've spoken to five or six private equity companies about maybe buying them, and they're all they're all interested. And I reached out to the CEO of R2I and the the head of finance, and they said we'll we'll let you know when when it goes on the market. So that that's a definite possibility. Very cool definite possibility. If you're listening out there, Rich Neff, we want to buy R2I. Please sell it back to me. <laughs> Well, I've, I, I've really loved talking to you today. Was there anything that we didn't get to that you think you'd like to, uh, any, any messages you want to put out there? Uh, Just for all the entrepreneurs out there, stick to it. Keep your personal overhead as low as possible and go make it happen. I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. People ask me, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not an email marketing expert. I'm not a Google search expert. None of those things. I'm just an entrepreneur. So I'll go entrepreneurs. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great episode and really look forward to talking again. And good luck with your company. I wish you the best of luck. You're going to kill it. Thanks so much, Matt.